0: You're listening to The Wicked Library.
1: (laughs) Now available from K.B. Goddard, the author of The Lift episode, The Lost Library, and The Wicked Library episodes, The Darkness Within, and Shadows, comes her debut novella, The Girl with the Roses. At the haunted auctions of Thornhill and Swift, where artifacts of the ghostly and the macabre are bought and sold, we learn of the statue entitled The Girl with the Roses. Charlotte Salt has always dreamt of marrying for love, but when she receives a proposal, she realizes that romance isn't always the deciding factor in the Victorian marriage market. Married to the eligible but secretive George Avery, she finds herself cut off from her family and friends when her husband takes her to live in his isolated Derbyshire home. Trapped in a loveless marriage, she finds her thoughts turning towards her brother's newly returned friend, the handsome Charles Jameson. In failing health and increasingly troubled by strange sights and sounds, she cannot help recalling Jameson's mysterious warning Be on your guard. What danger did he foresee? As dark forces surround her, she contemplates the fate of her predecessor. What happened to the first Mrs. Avery? In a summer of storms, can anyone save her from the shadows? The Girl with the Roses is now available for pre-order on Amazon and Kobo.
2: Ninth Story Studios Giving Story a voice
0: So oh, kiddies? So you want access to the Wicked Archives, do you? Well it takes money to keep the lights on and keep our beasties fed. Trust me, you don't want them hungry. They might just start eating the writers and then where would we be? Visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash and pledge your support to the show. For $2 a month, I'll give you a key to our collection of classic episodes. For $5 a month, I'll let you hear the bonus stories before the rest of our listeners. Even more tantalizing rewards await for those who want to sacrifice more to us. (laughs) Over 70 classic episodes are lurking deep in the private area of the library, just waiting to be heard by you. Led yourself to the library today, and you'll be ours forever. You're going to like it here, I think.
3: This is Daniel Foytek, and welcome to episode number 723 of the Wicked Library. Today's episode features a new author, John Cluworth, and a new storyteller, Louis Pollard. Artwork by our good friend Jeanette Andromeda, also of the Ninth Story Podcast and HorrorMade.com. Ninth Story Podcast features more interviews with authors, like you'll hear at the end of today's episode. If you're a fan of this show, you will probably love our other popular horror-themed podcast, The Lift. You can find out more about that show at victoriaslift.com. It's a little bit Twilight Zone, a little bit Fantasy Island, maybe a dash of Doctor Who in there, and wholly unique. It's about a mysterious girl and her elevator, or her lift, which travels between realms of different realities while she guides the visitors to her building to make a choice. Before we get started today, just a big thank you to all of those who took the time to rate and review us on iTunes. We really do appreciate those reviews. It helps keep the show on the charts, so people can find the show. And of course, to all of our Patreon supporters, thank you so much for supporting the show. You do make this show happen. And to everyone, thank you for listening and supporting our contributors.
0: Hello, listener. Welcome to the Gaslight Collective. I am the Collector. Come along now, let me show you my collection of audio delights. Yes, go on, pick one. All are sure to tickle your fancy, in one way or another. Ah, that's a good one you've chosen. The Wicked Library? Mmm, with our good friends, the librarian. Let's begin. We will make you believe. Well, here we are again. The warning at the beginning of the show. I'm getting a little tired of having to warn you people. I mean, the name of the show is The Wicked Library, for God's sakes. It's not The Sweet Pickles Library. Listener discretion is advised. If you're scared easily, good! (laughs) Seriously, though, bugger off if you can't take scary stuff. We're very scary here. (laughs) Boo. It is have a seat and relax. I am your library. There's nothing to be afraid of yet. Hold on to yourselves, whirls and ghouls. This is going to be a dark ride. We'll leave the lights on for now. No talking. It's story time. At the wicked library. <laughs>
3: Labyrinth, written by John Cluworth and told by Louis Pollard. The Manor School, set deep in the North Yorkshire countryside,
4: had been the showpiece of educational establishment of the rural village of Felston for the latter half of the 19th century, and indeed the foremost part of the 20th. Now, 25 years after the death of the long reigning Queen Victoria, the school was as oversubscribed as ever. The manor had been opened in 1848 to teach the sons of the local gentry and its students totaled no greater than 30 in number. Now, 78 years later, the school boasted more than 200 boys, all boarding and all the sons of the wealthy. Boys came from all over the nation and all over the world to be taught in this great seat of learning. Old Minorians were to be found in the finest of professions and several had been members of the cabinet. In fact, one was currently in office in a significantly high position. It emerged as no great surprise, therefore, that the press showed heated interest when the previous year, one of the boys vanished without a trace. The school was housed in, as the name suggests, a large Victorian manor house. It was built from pale magnesium limestone, which had been excavated from the quarry of Felston itself, The house had been erected in a T-shape, in a restrained Italianate style. In the early days, the boys had boarded in the crossbar of the T, whilst the classrooms were situated down the vertical, with the headmaster, his wife, the matron, and various housemasters living right at the foot of it. Its form was strictly symmetrical, though compact and regular, and, inevitably, it had been outgrown by the number of students on roll within a very few years, Stable blocks, barns and all manner of outbuildings have been converted into classrooms and sleeping areas for the boys and the masters in charge of them. The higgledy-piggledy collection of structures sprawled loungerously in a rural garden of green. A botanist's dream of virtually every species of tree, shrub, flora and fauna link separated and surrounded the buildings, being tended to by the finest groundsmen in the country. The micro-society itself was situated in a picturesque rural setting of rolling hills and woodland, laced with a sliding river which wound through the area, passing within half a mile of the school. The river was searched as well as possible for the missing boy. The hillsides were combed and the woodlands picked over, but no sign could be found of the absent adolescent. The police file remained resolutely open, but with no clues whatsoever as to the fate of the boy. Progress had effectively ground to a halt. Had he simply run away? The amount of ground that a 16 year old could cover before being detected was surely minimal. Had he been abducted? Known offenders had been questioned, likely houses had been searched, and all to no avail. It was as if he had simply vanished into the ether. The governors of the school had feared that the incident might tarnish the school's reputation, but their fears proved groundless. The media attention given to the disappearance of the boy had been expertly handled by the headmaster and his senior colleagues, who appeared quite clearly as bamboozled as the rest of the population. The great man expressed his heartfelt sorrow at the tragic vanishing, and took the opportunity to offer a reward of some £500 for any information that might lead to the whereabouts of Albert Simmons. The school maintained its high profile, received copious amounts of publicity, and came out of the whole affair with its reputation more than intact so much so that the editor of one very high-profile newspaper covering the story requested a prospectus. Herbert Patterson subsequently signed upon the dotted line, so impressed was he by the school. And that is why his son George found himself as part of the Manor community the following September. The first impression that George Patterson acquired as the classic Bentley containing his mother father had been far too busy to see him off, diminished into the distance of the long winding drive, was one of vastness. The grounds were immense and sprayed out in all directions in a picturesque ramble. The huge pillared portico which formed a grand entranceway into the headmaster's offices and living quarters seemed to yawn widely as if ready to swallow his minuscule body whole. A lump which felt to him like a boulder, remained defiantly in his throat as he stood, trunk in hand, trying to summon the courage and will to make the steps into the house. His father had considered this a sterling idea, as he was not achieving to the best of his ability in his local grammar school. The school would have him 24 hours a day, and would be the making of him. His collar-length, sandy hair riffled in the steady autumn breeze, His eyes threatened tears as he wanted to run. Such was the feeling of absolute loneliness. Hello there. The voice behind him startled him so much he dropped his trunk as he wheeled around to see its source. A dark-haired boy, about his own age, smiled ruefully at him and instantly apologised for causing his fright. Joseph Longmire, he said in a kindly tone. Sorry about that, old chap. He extended a long fingered, slightly effeminate hand towards George for him to shake. There was a warmth to the handshake which somehow seemed to radiate through Patterson's uncertainty, and he felt an instant amiability towards the handsome young stranger. You must be the new fellow. Would you like me to show you the way to the head's lair? He grinned widely at this, and George found the humour infectious, smiling his assent to his new found friend. Within the hour, George Patterson found himself storing his trunk beneath his sparse iron bed in the east-wing dormitory that contained 11 more such beds, the neighbouring one of which, to his delight, belonged to the welcoming schoolmate Joseph Longmire. The room was long and high-ceilinged, but was nonetheless imbued with a vespertine quality of light, which gave it an eerie atmosphere, even in the late afternoon. His initial malaise crept back into his veins, and this seemed to be detected by Joseph. Hey, try not to worry too much, old chap. Everyone feels a bit like you on the first day. And being that this is your first ever time boarding, I think you're doing swimmingly. (laughs) Joseph sat on the edge of his own bed, leaning forward to speak. The trick is to make sure that you have something familiar from your home with you, so that whenever you're feeling sad, you can just look at it or play with it. George tried to put his bravest face on as Joseph's clear blue eyes locked his gaze. Is that yours? He inquired, gesturing towards an item on Joseph's bedside cabinet. Oh, this? Yes. Mummy bought it for me a couple of years ago. It reminds me of the wonderful times we had together going to the theatre. We used to see just about anything, from operas to Shakespeare. We absolutely howled with laughter at a Midsummer's Night Dream. "'Do you still go as often with your mother?' "'She's dead,' replied the black-haired youngster, with a finality that left George without words. Instead of attempting to question Joseph further, he moved forward and knelt before the cabinet to examine his friend's treasured possession. The model theatre was similar in many ways to others of this time. The cardboard replica was an intricate representation of real theatre. Portraying actors' costume and scenery from some obscure play that George had never had the experience of seeing. An innovative system of slots and tabs enabled the theatre to hold itself together and to also have different backdrops for a variety of scenes. This was clearly a quite expensive toy, being hand coloured and highly detailed. The scene that it currently portrayed was a nighttime scene. Twisted, leafless trees had been painted onto the backdrop and a gaping face moon peered through their tangled branches. Two cardboard figures could be seen amidst the trees, and they appeared to be looking down at something of fascination on the make-believe ground. Indeed, one was pointing. The figures were of two young boys. The artwork was so finely produced that George could even make out the expressions depicted on their faces. The pointing boy was smiling cherubically, whilst the other wore a mask of ghostly terror. Which play is this one about? George ventured. Oh, nothing famous, just something I'm making up as I go along, Joseph responded. Can I play with it too? George inquired, reaching an outstretched hand towards the interior of the dwarf theatre. No, snapped Joseph, causing the other boy to withdraw his hand swiftly. He was not slow to notice the shock in George's eyes at this sudden outburst, and he endeavoured to calm the storm as quickly as he could. "'Sorry, I didn't mean to alarm you, it's just that... "'Well, it it was just between me and Mummy.' Reassured, George asserted to the lads that he understood perfectly. "'Say, supper's not for another hour and a half? "'Why don't we get out of here for a bit?' grinned Joseph. "'Sure, but where will we go? "'Are we allowed out of the manor?' (laughs) "'Of course we are, old man. We're not prisoners, you know. "'Come on, I know an absolutely top-hole place just a few minutes from the school.' you coming, said Joseph, rising and beginning to walk towards the door at the end of the dorm. There was something so persuasive about this youth that George would have followed him to the ends of the earth. He got to his feet and joined his comrade in pursuit of the exit. Within minutes the school was behind them as they strolled carefree through the meadows and lush green fields. The heady smell of wild garlic permeated the air, adding to the sense of delicious freedom that George felt in his breast. The whispering of the silvery river away to their right was almost hypnotic, and George felt as if he were being swept away on a gentle tide. Partway up the rolling hills that lay ahead, trees began to thicken into woodland and forest, and the autumn sun lit the upper branches like a majestic crown. Yellowy-brown leaves crunched beneath their feet as they entered the shadowy retreat of denser trees. George, a city boy born and bred, Cast his eyes around, awestruck at the textures of light that adorned the mulchy ground as the sunlight dappled through the moulting branches stretching high overhead. As they progressed deeper into the woods, George's spirits danced. He felt happier than he had ever done previously. The simple pleasures of enjoying the countryside, the pure and heady delights of nature had been denied him, albeit indirectly, by parents too busy to notice his inner needs. True, He had been given every material comfort that money could buy, but he had never received the precious time of his mother and father, nor had he shared family outings beyond the boundaries of the city. A crow called harshly from the cradling arms of a large oak, and George craned his neck to see a huge, tangled nest high above. He briefly wondered if the bird had chicks in there, and smiled. He felt more at home here than he had in his own home. As he walked on, He stayed close behind Joseph, his eyes taking in the silhouetted form of the other boy. Something stirred in his adolescent subconscious, something which he was not knowingly aware of, but something which spread within him like a warm tide, and he welcomed it. The two chatted amiably, as friends who might have known each other for years rather than hours, and the youth's conversation strayed inevitably onto the subject of the fairer sex. Innocent enough, and academic enough in a single-gender environment. But this made the talk all the more exciting, and boyish confidences were exchanged, as the bond that George felt for his comrade grew space. Up ahead, the trees began to thin out, and the sunlight fell in brighter splashes on the more exposed ground. The boys emerged from the thicket into a wide expanse of grass-covered land, leading onto a smaller wooded area approximately 50 yards up ahead. Come on! Giggled Joseph in a conspiratorial way as he began to run towards the waiting trees. George followed eagerly, his heart beating quickly with more than the exertion of the sprint. Suddenly, the other boy skidded to a halt at the very edge of a dense wall of trees, and he pointed to something above, about ten feet from the ground. George followed his gaze and was baffled by what he saw. What appeared to be two huge boughs leaned in at an acute angle each touching the other. They seemed to interwine, so close were they. No, it was more than that. These huge living boughs were joined together in a huge knot, as if bound by some paranormal hand. Carved upon the thriving wood was the legend Amelia's Labyrinth, one word adorning each gigantic limb. These boughs formed a weird archway which gave way to shadow and almost palpable darkness. Thick bushes and twisted trees formed an impenetrable boundary around the rest of this strange enclosure, leaving the awesome archway as the only way in and the only way out of this bizarre enclosure. How did the trees get tied up in a knot like that? Shh, hissed Joseph in a secretive, surreptitious manner. There's a certain magic about this place, old fellow. Things that can't be explained. That's part of what makes it so special. Come on, follow me. All you have to do is take my hand and follow me inside. Joseph reached out his slim fingers in invitation. George hesitated momentarily. Something, somewhere, way down in the depths of his subconscious, seemed to cry a warning. But this was too faint to breach the realms of consciousness. He smiled took his friend's hand, and together they ventured into the blackness. The experience was one of wonder for George, pressing forth into the unknown with a newfound soulmate. He felt drawn by and towards the black-haired, gracefully moving lad who had so willingly accepted him into his world. As his eyes began to grow accustomed to the dimly lit interior, George was able to make out the forms of tightly knit tree trunks and thickly clustering bushes which sprawled and loomed higher than his head. The initial blackness had now begun to give way to subdued and mottled greens, pierced only here and there by needles of tenacious sunlight. George was dimly aware of the lack of birdsong and the absence of noise from scuttling creatures of the undergrowth. A hypnotic silence enshrouded the boys, and all that George could hear was the sound of their leaf-scrunching footsteps and his own breath and heartbeat. He felt no fear, rather a kind of mesmeric succumbing. The arboreal walls formed natural barriers to the dark path that they now trod, and the path twisted and turned crazily in strange spirals and loops, seemingly going nowhere, yet George had the definite feeling it was leading somewhere, that they would be rewarded to the terminus of this labyrinthine trail. He wanted to ask, who is Amelia? But his mind lacked the necessary contact with his voice. He felt sleepy and dream-heavy, and he cared not that the words failed to come. He was happy to walk linked with Joseph in the maze of suspended belief. At the end of a particularly winding bend, the path opened up onto a small, slightly brighter area of ground. The trees here were slightly less dense, but they crawled together overhead, forming a natural canopy which emitted fairy-like light onto the copse. See? Joseph pointed a long finger up to the branches above. Wind chimes and mobiles dangled from the skeletal boughs. Fabric butterflies, paper birds, wooden carvings of no recognisable design, spun and winked in the pale sunlight and soft breeze. The wind chimes played ghostly tunes that sent, for the first time, tremors of uncertainty and emerging fear through George's psyche. I'm not sure I like this now, Joseph. Do you think we could turn back to school? George suggested. Sure, George. Soon. But you've got to see the best bit now you've come this far. He gestured towards the far side of the small clearing, to a slight break in the thicket. It's just through here. Something in Joseph's clear eyes once more reassured George. Okay, he concurred, just for a quick look. What appeared to George to be a vast open area revealed itself as he emerged behind Joseph through a small, natural doorway. Once more, the surreal quality of the environment overwhelmed George, and he stood in wonderment at what he saw sprawling in the centre of this expanse. The large circular clearing had, at its hub, a network of living trees, conjoined and intertwined in an enigmatic, apparently impossible way. Similar to the boughs of the entrance, which bore the name of the labyrinth, yet on a much larger scale, the trunks of mature oaks, cedars, larch, sycamores, and many more bent over from their bases, giving the impression of malleability, almost fluidity. They linked and looped, wrapped around one another, passed through each other, became one intricate, pulsating, thriving entity. This bizarre yet strangely alluring unnatural construction spread out 10 yards in all directions from its center, reflecting the circular theme of this otherworldly place. The heart of the woven living wood had no obvious means of access other than to climb over, through, across, the mesmeric attraction to George which had him, even now, moving ahead of his companion, was the spectral purplish-blue mist which rose, dream-swirling and lazily twisting from the very epicentre of the mass. Now it was George's turn to call out and beckoning. Come on, Joseph, let's climb! I'm right with you, old fellow, chuckled the raven-haired boy. As George placed first one, then two hands on the perimeter edge, he was astounded to feel that the wood was actually pulsing from inside he scrambled up and the thumping of the animated wood increased in pace his own heartbeat mirroring the acceleration he felt alive and vibrant joseph skitted after him whooping with unrestrained laughter the two of them leapt swung and dived in through and around the breathing wood to george it felt as he had acquired a supernatural speed time became suspended, colors blurred and merged. The surroundings, the wood, the earth, the sky, seemed to tumble erratically in an incredible rate. The invigorating, euphoric stream of emotion that rushed through his body intoxicated George, and he willed this maelstrom to never end. At intervals in this haphazard flow of images, he viewed very clearly the eyes of his newfound companion, Joseph Longmire sparkling, smiling, alluring. Then just as quickly they would be gone, and the chaos of colour and texture would begin again. He was no longer aware of actually moving his own arms and legs, it was as if the scene moved around him. Then, just as suddenly as the cessation of a tropical storm, all motion ceased. For a fraction of a second, he was suspended in midair. Then he fell gently to his feet, to soft grass. Bemused, baffled, he knew not what to do next. A hand on his shoulder jolted him back to reality. He snapped his head round to see the face of his friend smiling at him. Welcome, whispered Joseph. Welcome to the very heart of the labyrinth. As George peered round the corner, he could see that indeed they were in the very middle of the weird wooden structure. This centre consisted of a circular patch, roughly twenty feet across, like a bullseye of some enormous dartboard. The tangled trunks towered around the boys, seeming to now form a grotesque cage. The sky overhead seemed to have darkened, and the very feel of the air had changed. George now felt nothing of the heady acceleration that he had only seconds before experienced. Now fear chilled his veins, made him leaden. He turned round to look at Joseph once more, and the smile had left his companion's face, to be replaced by a knowing kind of expression, which unnerved him further. Please, Joseph, I-, I want to go now. I don't like it here anymore. His breath came in short, frightened gasps. Sure, old chap, Joseph replied, his voice velvety and coaxing. Just one more thing to see. He pointed to the far side of the clearing, where... Contrasting against the lush grass were two darker patches. Go ahead, George. Go take a look at the real secret of the labyrinth. George found that he'd begun to move towards the appointed place, though he wasn't sure this was a voluntary movement. As he progressed, he heard Joseph Longmire following closely behind him. Soon, he found himself standing over the origin of the brownest patches, and he realised to his horror... They were two freshly dug graves, gaping up like the mouths of two subterranean monsters, and one of the graves was occupied. The cold, pale body of a young boy lay face up and quite dead. His lifeless, sightless, drying eyes, like the flesh of hard-boiled eggs. It was George who now pointed. He pointed and shook visibly as he realised that the body in the grave was one that he recognised. He turned to the other boy, who was once more smiling. That's the boy who went missing. I've seen the picture of him in father's newspaper. No further words were forthcoming. Joseph Longmire began to change. His body elongated. His hair became longer, his clothes fell away to reveal a different style of attire. George gazed at the apparition before him with no semblance of comprehension. Standing before him was a tall, dark woman dressed in black robes. The long raven hair framed a face whose eyes and smile were all too familiar. Some vestige of his mind, as yet not numbed by the strange, toxic magic of this creature, spurred him to reach into the pocket of his blazer he withdrew a pocket knife and with his free hand released the blade. Every motion seemed to be occurring at an incredibly slow rate, as if the batteries of his life were dying. Yet the woman showed no inclination to stop him, the serene, secretive smile still upon her face. George raised the knife and swung his arm around in an abnormally sluggish arc. The blade struck flesh and he dropped the knife to the floor. He thought he had sliced the throat, that his aim was true. But as he looked at the woman, he saw nothing more than a two-inch scratch oozing blood on her left cheek. Still, she smiled. She smiled as his heart stopped. She smiled as he fell back into the vacant grave. His wide eyes gazing up to the grey heavens as if questioning God. In a darkened dormitory, a young boy slipped into bed, unnoticed by the other slumbering boys. George Patterson had knocked upon the headmaster's door, frightened and lost, earlier in the evening. The headmaster had been very kind and explained that the boy should not wander off on his own again, particularly as he didn't know the area, and especially in light of the fact that the school had already lost one pupil recently to much publicity. Not least was from his father's own newspaper. George had meekly and readily agreed. The headmaster has allowed him to bathe, then left him to the ministrations of the matron, who attired him in clean pyjamas. She saw him to his bed after applying the sticking plaster to the shallow two inch scratch upon his left cheek. Good night, matron. Thank you, he whispers, pulling the sheets up to his chest. On his bedside table, cardboard theatre stands illuminated by a shaft of moonlight from the narrow window the scene depicts a woodland backdrop a small figure a woman smiles as she looks out at an unseen audience by her feet are two darker shapes that contrast starkly with the bright green of the remainder of the surroundings it's impossible however to discern what these discolorations are Joseph Longmire lays lifeless in bed next to George, as yet unnoticed by all but he. A cloud passes across the moon, and the scene is extinguished. George smiles as he closes his eyes, savouring the sounds of the breathing of the remaining boys in his dormitory, the rhythmic pulsing lulling him into a deep, anticipatory sleep.
0: Oh, it's not that easy to leave the Wicked Library. There's still an interview with the author. But first, this...
2: and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.
3: Hey there. Do you like legends, myths, and whiskey? Or maybe just one of those things? Then you should listen to the Legends, Myths, and Whiskey podcast. For more information, head over to LegendsMythsAndWhiskey.com. You've tried washing it off, rubbing, scraping, scratching, and sanding it off. You've even tried grinding, cutting, and burning it off. But still it remains. It's zombie skin. So foreign to your own eyes, you wonder, are you still fully human? Or have you become the Contamination Whether you're struggling with cold sores, eczema, poison oak, poison ivy, acne, bee stings, bug bites, cuts, scrapes, scuffs, tears, chronic rash, or any of the endless ailments we all wish never happened, the antidote is the truly endless repair. Head over to zombielips.squarespace.com to buy the antidote. Become human again. Get yours today. Society
0: 13 Podcast Network. Redefining Podcasts. Society-13.com I like to listen.
5: Welcome to the Post Story Interview. I'm Jeanette Andromeda from the Ninth Story Podcast, and with me today on the tallest spire of the library's roof is our author, John Kluwerth. John is a teacher and the author of the young adult horror novels Firestorm, Rising, and Demons in the Dark, as well as numerous short stories. Welcome, John. Hello. Hello. How you doing?
6: Hi, thank you. Very well. I can hear you very clearly.
5: Oh, fantastic. I can also hear you incredibly clearly, which is awesome.
6: What amazing technology. (laughs) 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 Yeah, good to meet you.
5: It's nice to meet you too, John. Um, first question, I want to make sure I don't, uh, mangle your last name pronunciation. How do you pronounce your last name?
6: Oh, so it is, uh, Clueth.
5: Ah, I was doing it right! That's exciting!
6: Oh, amazing.
4: Which is... I don't know where
6: it came from. I think it's, you know, it's kind of a, I think it's Lancastrian or something.
5: Um,
4: Does that mean anything no, to you that? Not at, at all, other
6: not. than
5: Lancashire is what I would assume that would mean.
6: Exactly. Oh. Exactly. Then I assumed
5: <laughs> correct. That's fantastic.
6: <laughs> Fabulous. <laughs> I've never had a podcast before, so this is the first a first for me. Oh really? So it's uh, yeah, I'm really excited about it, um, and I'll certainly want to do more, you know. And uh, um, but I, I kind of found this uh, found this one is quite high up on the um, on the rankings, you know, mm-hmm. a f- recommended ones. So I thought oh, I'll give it a go, and luckily, um, I struck lucky yeah. with uh, with Amelia's Labyrinth. So really pleased about that.
5: I think Amelia's Labyrinth just kind of, it's exactly the kind of story that I personally love the Wicked Library for because it is, it's so creepy, it's got like kids involved and it's so, it's like fantasy yeah. but horror and it's just uh, exactly <laughs> what I I personally
1: love.
6: <laughs> oh yeah, well yeah, I mean it's um, it's kind of, I'm a teacher by trade so um, you know I, I kind of use bits of the kids that I teach. You know, they, they they get sorted into the stories as well, which is which is always good. Um, they, they won't find out about it until later in life, probably. You know, <laughs> it's too late <laughs> by then. <clears throat> so yeah, and I'm a big fan of M.R. Um, James, and I think yes. that's what really influenced me when uh, when I wrote this one. It's kind of you know it's the kind of um, more hinting at rather than being too graphic, and I think that works really well, particularly in a period piece like Amelia's Labyrinth.
5: Absolutely. So I'm I'm curious. Which uh, are there any specific elements from the kids you've worked with that ended up in this story?
6: Well, yeah. I mean, um, I, I've been teaching for a few years now, and it's a really busy job. And I think during those years, I think you know, as a writer, you kind of just you go through life, and you you kind of like a magnet, and you, you things certain things cling to you and hang in there, uh, mm-hmm. and you can use them in stories later. Uh, certain things pop up that you've never even thought about for a long time and when I wrote this story uh, quite a few things came together uh, so years ago when I first I used to be a coal miner to, to begin with that's kind of not relevant but I started throwing <laughs> it in you know cause yeah. it's kind of historic now and there are, <laughs> there are none of those <laughs> left over here um, and then I, went to, I trained to be a teacher and I trained at this lovely place called Breton Hall which was um, it had a mansion house which kind of features in the story as well. And the first job that I took when I qualified as a teacher was as um, a housemaster and a teacher in, well, down south of England, so mm-hmm. miles away from where I normally live. Um, and it was a boarding school. And so a boarding school features in this as well. So there are elements from where I trained, and elements from you know the boarding setup. So that's hopefully it's authentic and it comes through as authentic because um, I've sort of pulled on that and sort of real life experience, uh, twisted it a bit as you do, you know. Um, yeah, and uh, and and also uh, there was a a place that I visited where where the in in the, in the story is actually a. Uh, a kind of a, a weird. The labyrinth itself is entered through uh, a network of trees, which sort of combine and link together. And years ago, I was almost like a dream, but I'm, I know I know it wasn't. It was years ago. I can't remember where it was, unfortunately. But uh, I visited a place, and it was um, it had um, these trees that just kind of knotted together and looked like somebody'd done it you know, with with rope or something, but it was actually these trees that linked together in it. and it stuck in my memory and I thought, Well, that's fantastic, and that could crop up in a story somewhere. So that came in. And I think you know, that's how yeah. stories work. You kind of throw bits in from everywhere. So whilst there were no sort of, the, the the characters in the story weren't based on any sort of real people, I did draw on sort of real events.
5: Well I- Wow, like that I can't even <laughs> believe that you actually saw a place that you described, <laughs> even in a little tiny bit, like the woven trees. It was so fantastic, yeah. like based in fantasy. I thought I was like, this could never be real. You actually went yeah, somewhere.
6: I, it's really. I've googled it and I've tried to find it on the internet, and I can't find I can't find a picture of it anywhere. Um, but it was actually—I'm I'm presuming some some really talented gardener or something, you know, sort of put this thing together and and encouraged them in some way to link up. But it was really good, and I, I think it actually lent into some kind of, you know, when you went inside this thing, it had the wind chimes and the the weird stuff nailed to trees, and and that without giving too much. Well, well the story's already been on so, uh, so it, you know, that those those feature in the story as well. But I've thrown in, hopefully, um, you know, quite a few scares and a few chills in there as well.
5: The whole time it was just like, this is not going to go well. This is not going to go <laughs>
6: Absolutely. well. Don't, yeah, don't trust that kid. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, there was something sinister about it right from right from the get-go, wasn't there?
5: Right from the get-go. And he's being so nice. I think the problem was, it was he was so lovable and just, like, enamored with him immediately. It was, something's yeah. off. What is it? Yeah, he's it? such a... <laughs>
6: such a hero wasn't he you know oh come on I'll take you under my wing you know so know, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> it just, it just didn't, go, it didn't go very well from there on in but uh, I think that's the way that I mean I kind of like really I'm influenced by people like M.R. James mm-hmm. um, people like uh, Lovecraft to a certain extent um, Algernon Blackwood people like that are just absolutely fantastic. And, and it's kind of, you know, a lot of a lot of I mean, I, I write all kinds of different, I'm going to talk about that in a minute maybe, but um, the um, I, I really do like the kind of Victoriana, I'm really hooked on Victoriana uh, and the period stuff, because it was quite a dark period and lots of weird stuff going on. And to kind of reflect that without, you know, in the kind of um, what I think of as an Alfred Hitchcock style, where the, you know, you can always imagine a camera sort of panning round, and it's what you don't see just outside the camera angle. Or, you know, when the last thing at night when, you, when you're going to sleep, I know it creep you out too much, but you know, <laughs> you know you turn the light off, and, and there's kind of, if ever you just turn the light, but keep, keep your eyes open and turn the light off, there's always something that appears to be there in the corner of your eye.
5: Every just single really... time.
6: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I always close mine now before I turn the light <laughs> on. For just... yeah, so so things like that all come to. You. I'm fascinated by that and how the mind works, and uh, you know why we're scared of the dark and why we're scared of what we can't see, and all those. I think I think really, really sort of effective horror stories work in that way. So I tried to. That's what I tried to do with this one.
5: I I loved it because it, it did. You really allowed the shadows of this story to lurk and, uh, yeah. long enough that it was really just uh, terrifying and for for a moment I when when they actually ended up in this vortex part I was almost like oh maybe oh, yeah. they're going into another world sort of kind of oh it's You're kinda, like a ball still going." <laughs> yeah like maybe this won't be entirely bad Oh no! Uh, no, <laughs> oh, <laughs> wrong podcast. No,
6: you, you, yeah, your initial fears were confirmed. You know, this this was never going to end well. But I, I love those kind of things as well. We can talk about you know the end part and the um the I, I because I, I'm a lover of the open spaces. I I love being outside, green fields, meadows, trees. You know, it's the best kind of chill out that you can get, really. Um, it's just it's nature, nature at its best. And I think except uh, Blackwood, who was one of my favourites, he, he uses nature and describes nature and then twists it in really good ways. And so I wanted to kind of lead the reader on, or the listener in this case, through this journey, through this magical kind of experience and this great friendship that blossomed between these two boys. Really, just kind of drop you down a great big hole. <laughs> and... Uh, and it's like, oh, didn't see that one coming. So hopefully, <laughs> hopefully we didn't see we didn't see the ending coming. Although we might have suspected it was going to end a bit sticky. You know <laughs> Oh yeah.
5: <laughs> I mean, it was a, it's all you know, point of perspective for the other fellow. This worked out great. So
6: <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Totally. It's so, so in a way, every awesome. cloud's got a silver lining. <laughs> it's
5: it's just it's I kind of read it as like a changeling story. Um, yeah. Where it's just like swapping places, but in this case, exactly. we don't get both yeah. babies back.
6: <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I wanted to kind of, as in the end, because um, I kind of wrote it and then you know you rewrite it. Mm-hmm. If you re- if you carry on rewriting, you drive yourself crazy. By the way, it's just a tip mm-hmm. for anybody that wants to write. Uh, just just write it until it until it sounds right, and then stop because you could always tweak bits. But I wanted to leave a question mark at the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, kind of does does, um, does uh, the sort of main character does he jump from one body to another? Does his spirit go? You know, where where does Amelia come from? Is it linked to this other boy's mother? Uh, you know, it's those kind of things that, that it's that triangle of things that uh, I think the end bit, the end part, kind of reveals that to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. You know, when George is lying there with a, a sort of scratch on his cheek, and uh, you know he's, he's, he's lying there very sweetly with the sort of Corpse in the bed next to him. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so that's definitely one to listen to with the lights on. I love that yeah. thing on the where It goes, "Go ahead, leave the lights on." Yeah. <laughs> I think that's a really good idea. <laughs> I love. It. By the way, I just, I'm just really glad to be among such brilliant uh, stories i've been sort of you know binging on them and I've, I've downloaded them onto my phone and sort of listening to them in the car it, it's brilliant you know i've kind of I've, stumbled, I've maybe stumbled onto it a bit late but um it's great it's fantastic i would recommend the wicked library to anybody and everybody and i'm pumping it out there on all my twitter and everything so uh yeah really big up to it it's fantastic really glad to be working with you
5: We're really glad to have you like a lot and thank you for sharing the show. I've yeah I specifically this season actually all the seasons have been really interesting. I constantly go through the back catalogue and I'm just like let's listen to another story. Yeah
6: and it really works well in the kind I think as I say you know with the podcast um, I suppose it was kind of a. You know, this is the first Skype thing I've ever done, by the way. So these oh, really? interviews on Skype. Yes. <laughs> I had to, to kind of learn how to use Skype. So I think we writers tend to just hide ourselves in, you know, behind a screen, and uh, and, we, and we just do all that kind of thing, and then sort of technology catches up with us. But uh, maybe maybe I've may still got one one foot in the you know the Victorian era. I would have loved to have lived in the Victorian era. I think it would have been fascinating. You know, all these people walking around in black and oh, yeah. stuff like that. If but then you again, there wouldn't have were... been any podcasts, so, you know, be, that wouldn't have been any good.
5: But then people would be telling stories just normally. Absolutely.
6: Yeah, absolutely.
5: If you were transported back to Victorian anywhere in the world, what would be the first thing you'd yeah. want to explore?
6: Oh, I think probably the Victorian schoolroom. Because mm-hmm. um, being a teacher by trade, I'd be really intrigued, you know, as to how these sort of, you know, really mean-minded people got into the job. You know, because I, I love the job and, I, yeah, I love working with kids. And I think writing works really well when you get it out there. Because I write for kids as well, you know, I love a lot of stuff at middle grade and young adult. Uh, but I do enjoy the, sto- the short story. So I think, I, I think I'd like to go in there and probably, I don't know, sort of take the cane off one of these teachers and snap it over my leg and look really heroic. You know, and have all the Victorian kids sort of jumping up and cheering and <laughs> stuff like that. Um, and probably as well you know like you're fascinated with stories like Oliver Twist so you could you know you could see these um, really weird funerals with the black horses and the black plumes and people sort of um, you know um, really sort of mourning for years and years and that's not you know I'm a cheery kind of guy but I just think that kind of stuff is really really fascinating you know the psychology behind it is is amazing really um, and also the you know the kind of um the, the sort of society that would have been around at that time. So I think I would like to go back to, yeah, perhaps qualify my comment on living in the Victorian. I think I would like to visit it <laughs> and then really quickly, I think. So probably probably just a, fly, a fleeting visit.
5: <laughs> yeah. You, you hit a certain point where you're like, man, a shower would be nice, but... I oh, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, I want to backtrack just a little bit to something you had said yeah, earlier absolutely. about editing your story, and I'm wondering, yeah. was there anything you edited out of this story?
6: Do you know? Um, not really, because this was one of those that it, it almost wrote itself. Nice. It's really strange. Um, it kind of just layered itself really nicely, and the characters just grew naturally. I think all most of the elements were in place. You know, because I'd, I'd, I'd seen I'd seen the places and they kind of just slotted in like like pieces into a jigsaw. Um, you know, but I mean, with this story and, and with others, um, you know, I I try to aim for some kind of moral tone. Uh, I'm not sure there's an awful lot of moral tone in this one, but um, you know, it's kind of not being too graphic but hinting at internet stuff that might be and the magic of you know the magic of life and i think that's probably that's probably why i set it back in this mysterious kind of you know um victorian era because it's it is it is of that kind of time of uh, you know really when uh, you know when kind of anything anything not anything went but you know the technology wasn't there and people were I suppose people were free to dream and, and have nightmares in equal quantities. Um, so in terms of editing stuff out, not really on this one. it was it was one of those really sweet ones and redrafted it a couple of times, took out unnecessary junky language, but uh, kind of the payoff the payoff was there right right from the start. So yeah, it kind of worked really well that one.
5: Nice. <laughs> For you, uh, how often does it does a story really just lay itself
6: out like that? um as 50 maybe 50 percent of the time mm-hmm. i've got I've, I've written a couple of novels uh which went out with a with an indie publisher um and uh, and I've written a new one which is which I'm gonna chase an agent with um and that one kind of took it took years mainly one one because of the day job you know the day job's really busy um i'm sure anybody that you know, works in teaching will tell you the same thing you get, you get a little bit of uh, time maybe towards the end of the day so I tend to write after dark um, and yeah it, some, sometimes it doesn't it doesn't layer itself as, as easily um, the one I've just written now has taken a little bit because I got to the I got to the kind of last third and the first two thirds had almost written themselves really nicely and I thought that sounds so good you know, I'm struggling now to sort of where it's going to go to the end, so... But I think the key thing is, you, you, there's two things you can do in that situation as a writer. You can either sort of back away from it and think I'm going to I'm going to ditch it and leave it, or you can just keep plugging away. And if it doesn't work, you know, then scrap that bit and, and try it again. So I do try to write a little and often. Um, and, and uh, you know, that, that kind of helps the process. So when I'm on holiday, I write early in the morning. Uh, when I'm on uh, when I'm uh, kind of working, it's just late at night. Uh, but just you know, even if it's just a few words every day. So it's kind of fifty percent of the time. I think a lot of it is you know I don't believe in necessarily so much inspiration. Uh, I think that's a bit of a myth. I think writing writing's like a it's a bit like a job really. You got to stick at it and the more you practice, the better you get. You know, and I think that, that's the key thing. And sometimes really good ideas come along, and sometimes you've just got to graft at them, and start with a, maybe a vague idea and chip away until eventually, you know, you chip away. Imagine like a, a chunk of rock until this sculpture comes out. But yeah, with with Amelia's labyrinth, it was all there. It was just like a you know fill it in by numbers. It was just such a a a cute little idea that lent itself to being written that way but unfortunately not everything does come that easy it's sometimes just a bit of a trial and error i don't think there are any right or wrong answers in writing so you know i think it's just just dabbling and uh, sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't but that's art, isn't it mm-hmm.
5: so i'm also curious since you are a teacher um and you've written a lot for young adults and middle grade yeah. readers what draws you to writing to these to this age range
6: Well, I love it because I think it's one of the hardest things to do. I I, I think when I first looked at it, I thought it's it's easy, you know, because maybe they're a bit shorter um, and and kids are an easy audience. They're not. They're not easy at all. They're very discerning and it's a massively competitive market out there. Um, And so I think it's more a case of, well, I'm I'm working with them and I I know, you know, I've got pretty much how they tick. And I also know the kind of stuff that they like to read. Uh, And I thought, well, you know, maybe we can can share it it with them. When the first one came out, um, which was Firestorm Rising in 2012, um, when it came out and I sort of announced it in assembly, the kids got really excited. And it was like, you know, because then they thought, wow, you know, I can do it as well. And that really does give me a buzz. And you sort of think, well, you're taking, you, you taking you writing, you're taking something that you love yourself, and you're bringing it to them and inspiring them. And if it, you know, if it, it hooks one kid to pick up a book, then I think that's a fantastic thing to do, you know, because there's so many distractions for kids these days oh, yeah. on tablets and phones and you know computers and video games, and sometimes you know they, they seem to barely look up. Great to see a kid with a book in their hand and say, oh, "Wow, sir, you're an author." Well, what, 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 I didn't think I didn't think normal people could do this. <laughs> well, I'm not normal, <laughs> but yeah, it's great. And, and then they say, so, and then they, oh, I'll, they write ones and they say, "Can I show you this?" And I've got I've started writing one. Will you, will you have a look at it? And so I think it's fantastic because as a teacher, you should be taking the curriculum out to the kids. You know, rather than the other way around, dragging them, screaming and kicking to the learning. You should meet them somewhere in the middle, spark a relationship. That's where the learning takes place. Uh, And I think it's the same with writing. So what um, I've done, sort of the odd workshop in school, obviously I can't do too many because I'm a full-time teacher. But I have, you know, in, in various where holidays have overlapped, I've been into other schools and done workshops in there. Uh, And it's great because kids are so genuinely honest, and they ask you really, and they give you genuine sort of, uh, you know, ideas and uh, criticism. But if you know, if they if they say they like it, they like it, and that's you know, it's a fantastic buzz, Uh, and they just get so excited. You know, they they haven't got any inhibitions. Well, they, they soon drop them, you know, they soon drop their inhibitions to kids. So I think that's kind of what attracted me to it. And you can have a lot of fun because, I mean, obviously with, with this one, it's for, it's for an older market, you know, it's for the Wicked Library. Um, and so it kind of, you know, there's not a lot of, um, you know, I'd probably class it as a, you know, an older certificate if I was going to classify it, although that's difficult to do. Um, but with the younger ones, it's great being able to say, you know, so it's how far you can pull it, but then remember you know that these are kids and young adults that you're writing for but they love being scared and when i was a kid i used to love being scared so you know um, i used to watch programs like um oh you may not have heard of this but uh appointment with fear um which was a great it used to be on once a week and it used to be allowed it was a friday night you used to be allowed to stay up late and it had vincent price and peter cushing people like that um, and I used to stay up late and watch that and I used to love these stories and the hammer house of horror things. Like, and I used to enjoy those and there wasn't there were hardly any books for kids and young adults but you had to go straight into the likes of James Herbert and Stephen King and that's what I cut my teeth on you know at age sort of 11 and 12 I was reading James Herbert and Stephen King and um, and I think that's kind of what drew, drew me to it and I love reading you know good authors that produce the same stuff. Mm-hmm. Because it's not, you know, it might be written with a middle grade or a young adult thing on it. It's fantastic and works for adults as well. You know, we can we can have a good time with it as well. So it's not, the idea is not talking down to them, mm-hmm. but talking to them in, in, in ways that they understand and opening up these ideas to them. So that's kind of why I, uh, why I enjoy it, really, yeah.
5: I can entirely appreciate that because, like, I... I did not grow up cutting my teeth on Stephen King. It was only once I got to college age, I was like, yep. oh, I should start reading Stephen <laughs> yeah. King. But I was lucky Absolutely. enough to have a lot of young adult literature that I was able to just dig into. So yeah. authors like you are the reason that I have friends.
6: <laughs> oh, fantastic. Fantas- oh, that, that's, my, that's my life made. Yeah. <laughs> What a delightful thing to say! I think you're probably you. You must be you must be a bit younger than me. I'm, I'm 29 and a bit, and then a bit, and then a bit, and then a bit. Uh, so, so yeah, I was uh, I was when uh, when when Herbert was kind of almost just kicking off, and he was you know, I mean he was fantastic. I mean when when he passed away, I was gutted. You know what what a, if there was one thing, if there was one law that I would pass, it would somehow you know if we could overcome the natural laws, it would be to keep you know these geniuses so they could keep producing stuff. I would absolutely, find, you know, because the, the kind of, um, I'd make them immortal. Mm-hmm. You know, the likes of the great man Stephen King, I'd keep out what, forever, you know, because that kind of talent never dies. So yeah, I was in there, I was in there right at the start with him, because there's such energy in the writing and such honesty, mm-hmm. you know, and, and such originality. Because that's, I think that's a tricky thing to do when you're writing. It's kind of, well, how much has been done before? You know, and I try not to churn out you know like zombie stuff and vampires because it's been done so many times unless you come up with a really fantastic idea and oh gosh you know many people do um, but you know and none have occurred to me yet but the ghost story is timeless there's so much you can do with ghosts because my area where I live it's, it's like rife with ghost stories and there's no wonder I'm so warped you know there's these uh, <laughs> everywhere you look there's a ghost story I live about um, two or three miles from Pontefract Castle and there's uh, monks and raggedy girls and all kinds of things that are seen there after dark so yeah it's fantastic and there's haunted you know haunted pubs that's a bar in America, isn't it? Um, it <laughs> so depends. if I start if I start speaking York, you just let me know, you know. So, I, I just slip into it. I, I just I feel very comfortable speaking with you. So if I, if I do laps, you know, just just let me know. I don't understand what you're talking about. Yeah. You do, but yeah, well. it's good. Oh, thank you. And if I ramble too much, just let me know as well. You may have to edit me down.
5: <laughs> Hardly. I'm just I'm enjoying just hearing your stories.
6: Oh, fantastic! Fantastic.
5: Also, certain certain bars in America we do call pubs, but those tend to be the ones that are uh, English themed or Irish themed. Oh right! <laughs> yes,
6: yeah, absolutely. That's that's great. You see, I mean, um, there, there are so many um, there are so many things. It's a much smaller world, isn't it? And we've got, I mean, like again, when you go back to when I was a kid, you know, you had like three channels on the TV, and now we've got Umpteen. Team. Um, but I love the shows that. Produced by America, you know, like I um, love The Walking Dead, that's that's absolutely fantastic. It's one of my favorites, that one. Um, oh gosh, what's the other one? What's the other one it's gone at the minute. Uh, it's one that we're currently watching. Oh, yeah, of course, Game of Thrones. I oh, mean, yeah. George R.R. R. Martin, there's a guy that doesn't pull any punches, right?
5: Oh my gosh, I whenever mean, you it's... think he's going to pull a punch, you're just ripped apart, totally. <laughs>
6: But the nice thing is you can always remember at the end of the day, it's just a story. It's just a book. You know, we're all normal people out there. And I think the best kind of writers are the well-balanced people, because I think you put your nightmares down on the page or on the screen. And if you can share that with other people and other people have a good time with it, then brilliant, you know, job done.
5: (laughs) (laughs) Well, on that, uh, on that note, I think I want to direct people to find where they can share more of your nightmares. Um, and yeah. I know you have a website and a Twitter account. Which are those, and uh, where can people find you other than that if there are other places?
6: Yeah, okay. Um, so um, the website is Um And that and this is Dark and Spooky Tales for Kids and Young Adults, I think. That's the title of it. Um, I update it infrequently but it's um, it is something that you can find out that it's, it's up to date at the moment and you can find out snippets there are snippets of the books I've done so far so there's little links where you can go and read chapters and you know pick up ideas from there uh, so that's the website um, Twitter is at John Cluworth, and on there I shout out about anything that's going on uh, in writing at the moment and you know works in progress um, books are on Amazon and um, and some, you know, various other outlets, but Amazon, you can I've got an Amazon page. So if you just Google Amazon John Clueth, you'll find the stuff on there. Um, what else? I've got a Facebook page called uh, John Clueth Author. And uh, so when there's anything that I need to you know, everything's up to date on there as well. So I've given a I've given a bit of a shout-out about Wicked Library on there as well. So a bit of advert for that. Um, I've also done a free one, so if anybody wants to dip into any anything for completely for free as a gift um, on Smashwords, there's something called "Nightmares from the Graveyard," and if you just Google "Nightmares from the Graveyard" John Cleworth, um, it's completely free, and it's a kind of I think it's four stories, four short stories, linked together by a narrator who just meets somebody in the graveyard and starts telling tales and things like that, and. Uh, and it, it will hopefully, you know, give people a, a bit of a, a taste of the various things that I do. So, Fantastic. yeah, so that's, kind of, that's kind of where I'm at at the minute.
5: Perfect. Thank you so much. And I'll make sure that um, all of those links end up in our show notes on wickedlibrary.com So you can just
6: Fantastic. go there and
5: find everything from John Clureth. And thank you. Brilliant. Thank you so much, John, for, uh, for joining me today. <laughs>
6: Oh, Jeanette, thank you so much for having me, and what a pleasure to work with yourself and with the Wicked Library.
5: You can find more of John's work at johncleworth.com, J-O-H-N-C-L-E-W-A-R-T-H.com, and on Twitter, at John And if you'd like to hear more in-depth interviews with writers of horror, you can find them and myself over on my podcast, The Ninth Story. For those links and even more information, you can find it all on the wickedlibrary.com. Thank you for listening and do watch your step on the way out. The roof tiles can get a bit slick this time of day.
3: Thank you for listening to today's episode of The Wicked Library. The Wicked Library is a Ninth Story Studios production. NinthStory.com. If you enjoy the show, please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Wicked Library. Not only can you be a part of helping us keep the shows coming for as little as $2 a month, but you get extra things like bonus stories, little things from the librarian, and more. Season 7 of the Wicked Library is sponsored in part by the Legends, Myths, and Whiskey podcast. You can find them at legendsmythsandwhiskey.com, and, of course, in iTunes or wherever you subscribe to podcasts. Also sponsored in part by Zombie Lips. They make the antidote for the human condition. Get the cure at zombielips.squarespace.com. All audio recorded in-house at Ninth Story Studios is recorded on Rode Microphones. You can find out more about Rode and their great products over at Rode.com. That's R-O-D-E.com. A big thank you to Rode for helping us make the show sound as good as it does. Complete show notes and credits, including links and information to all of today's contributors, storyteller, author, artists, everybody else involved, can be found at thewickedlibrary.com. You can also find links to our Twitter, Facebook, and iTunes page. And once again, just a reminder, if you do enjoy the show, if you are a regular listener, Please take a moment to rate and review the show in iTunes. Ratings and reviews help keep us in the charts so other people can find us and make sure that all the contributors to the show get their work heard and seen. Until next time, go ahead, keep the lights on. Makes it easier for you to find your way into the labyrinth.
2: 18- Plus.